Good morning, everyone. My name is David. I'm glad to be at the port. I love coming down to the port. Don't tell the Mariner campus, but I love coming down here. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good to be here. And it's good to be here on, on Palm Sunday. And uh, now, if, if you've been in church for a while, you'll know that uh, this is the beginning of the most important week in the church calendar, which is called Holy Week, culminating in Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Um, now, depending on your background, one of the things that would often happen on a Palm Sunday service with kids, what would they do? Does anybody know? They get palm branches, and they go up and down the aisles, and they'd sing one of the 17 versions of Hosanna, the, you know, going up and down, waving palm branches. I, I would preach, um, there's another church in Coquitlam that I preach at quite often, and they would often do, you know, the palm branches and waving palm branches. And I have to say, for reasons that I hope will become clear, it, it is a bit of a strange custom, waving palm branches. And even... Palm Sunday, which is a, a focus on, on what is called the triumphal entry. You're going to discover, I think, even the term triumphal entry is a bit of an odd name for the event that we're going to be looking at. Um, this weekend, we commemorate the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. And all four Gospels describe this, uh, this account. Uh, we're going to look in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of John. John chapter 12, and what I'd like to do, um, just to kind of set the story, let's go way back, and we'll start in verse 1, John chapter 12, verse 1, okay? Um, In honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's a pretty big detail. Yeah, where Jesus just happened to raise from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, as Martha always does, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment from uh, Purnard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of, so she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to, de- to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, a large crowd had come to the feast, uh, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Jesus, this is the story about you. You are present with us as we sing, as we give, and as we hear your word. So help us to lean in. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Soften our hard hearts. And help us to to receive what you want to say to us this morning. And have the courage to respond to what you say. That is our desire and we lay that before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, this passage, especially the passage of the triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it, it comes on the heels of one of the most important chapters in the entire book of John, John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, you come across um, two, two incredible, two very strong emotions. You come across the deepest despair that comes when you lose a loved one. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, um, had died. Uh, Jesus wept, everyone's weeping, like they're in a point of deepest despair, the kind of despair that you experience when you lose a loved one. But you also come across a different emotion, and that is an emotion of great, great joy. Why? Because the unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ over death. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, right after this, in our passage that we read, we read that there's a celebration that takes place. And I think, how would you celebrate your best friend coming back to life? Like, so you have dinner. Like, like, it's just a, should we go to White Spot? You know, Lazarus is alive again. How are we going to sell? So they're celebrating this. And what an interesting celebration that would have been. You know, our friend is alive again. And during the dinner... While Martha served again, Lazarus' sister Mary does something deeply devotional, but a bit unusual. She takes expensive ointment, breaks it open, and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, what makes this so interesting, a bit unusual, is what Mary's doing. She's anointing Jesus. And if you think about it, in, in, in one week's time, she's anointed She's anointed two bodies. She's anointed her brother's body after he died. Isn't that interesting? And now she's anointing Jesus. And again, it's an anointing in preparation for Jesus' coming death. Now, all this lies as a background for Holy Week, for, and for our purposes, Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Again, it's called the triumphal entry. It's a bit of a misnomer 
Because on one hand, it is, you know, Jesus comes into town and everybody's celebrating and everybody's saying, Hosanna, you know, um, save us, and kind of a celebration. And yet the same crowd, within a very short period of time, instead of singing Hosanna, are yelling the words, crucify him. So it's, it's a bit of a strange experience. So what is going on in this passage? Well, I think in this passage we're witnessing a clash of understandings about what Jesus is all about. As Jesus moves towards revealing his true identity and his true mission, the crowd is revealing their expectation about who Jesus is, is who is, what his identity is, and what his mission is supposed to be all about. And here's the thing. You've got Jesus' identity and mission, and you have the crowd's expectations about Jesus' identity and mission. And here's the thing. They don't match. They don't match. What, can, what was the crowd expecting? What was the crowd expecting when Jesus came into town? Well, I think they're expecting a king. They were expecting a king. We see in verse 12, in verse 13, they say, yeah, a large crowd had come. Um, they heard Jesus was coming to town. They took palm branches, went out to meet him. They sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're singing and they're shouting and they're saying these words, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, these are not random terms. The words that the crowds are saying are steeped with meaning, and we need to get this, because they're actually quoting a psalm. They're quoting Psalm 118. Now, the moment they quote Psalm 118, the whole temperature of what's going on is raised. The stakes are raised. Since we're talking about casinos, the, the stakes are raised, right? Sorry, yeah. Now, why, why is this so loaded? Well, this psalm is a messianic psalm. It's a leadership psalm. It's a psalm that, within, within the Jewish mindset, pointed to the coming of the Messiah, pointed to the coming of the king who is going to deliver Israel. Okay? So the moment they sing the song, it's pretty loaded. It's, 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 the psalm was like a national anthem, which, which held within it the idea that Israel would overthrow its enemy, militarily. Okay, so I was trying to think of an example. It like would be like singing the Star-Spangled Banner in Buckingham Palace during the war, the American Revolution, or something like that, right? I mean, it's, it's that loaded, right? And if that wasn't loaded enough, they actually add a line to the psalm. This is actually not in the psalms. And the line that they add is, Welcome to the King of Israel. Welcome to the King. And that's why the, that's why the Pharisees are so nervous, and that's why the Romans get quite nervous about this is because the moment they add the line, you know, the king of Israel, the moment they add that line, it, it, it lays out their expectations of Jesus' identity and mission. Jesus is the king. Sing praises to the king. 
Welcome to the King of Israel. Now, imagine, imagine you're in a position of power. Okay, you're a Roman leader. You got this guy, Jesus, coming in. And the crowds are singing a military song. And they add the line, welcome to the king. If you're a leader, a Roman leader, what what are you going to think? How would you feel? (laughs) You feel threatened. Hang on. Like, I'm in charge, and you're singing a song that this other guy is going to come in and is going to be in charge. Are you asking me to step aside? Okay, so you got this song. Now, that's pretty loaded. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, let's add a few more layers, though. What are they waving? Palm branches, right? Now, palm branches. This is pretty loaded as well. Why? Because palm branches were symbols of nationalism. They were military symbols of victory over Israel's enemies. So that's why I always think it's strange when when kids would run up and down the aisle waving palm branches because the equivalent would be kids running up and down the aisles with swords or shooting machine guns. That's the equivalent, right? Because the palm branches, palm branches, it it all goes back to um, 141 B.C. where where Simon Maccabee drove the Assyrians out out of Jerusalem the crowds received him waving palm branches. Military victory. Even if you fast forward to about 66 to 70 AD, uh, those who fought against the Romans minted new coins, and on the coins, what would they stamp? Palm branches. So I was trying to think, again, the equivalent would be um, back, I think it was in 1989, in, um, in Romania, when, uh, when there was a movement against Ceausescu, what the Romanians did is that they had these flags, and there was a Rom- it was a national flag, but does anybody know, remember what they did? There's something special about the flag. I wish Soren was here. He would have thought, yeah, yeah. They, they cut out the middle. They cut out the communist the, the emblem, but they kept the Romanian um, identity in the flag. And so if you look at pictures, you'll see all these flags, but they all have the middle cut out. And the moment you saw that symbol, it was a symbol of, of, um, of um, kind of an uprising against Ceausescu. I also saw this personally in my experience uh, living in China, because I, I moved in, and was living in China in 1990, which is a year after Tiananmen Square, 1989, the government crushed this massive uh, student movement that gathered together in Tiananmen Square. And they, 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 they rolled in the tanks and thousands of, of, of students were killed. And, um, and, and they really clamped down. So I went to China in 1990, and it, it was pretty intense. The government was still pretty intense, looking for any kind of, suppressing any kind of demonstration. But the students still wanted to demonstrate. But how are you going to do that, right? And so um, every um, June 4th, because that's when it took place, so you go, Liu Si, like 6-4, right? So that's June 4th. What students would do is very clever. What they would do, because the demonstration, the students were, um, the whole crackdown, the guy behind it was, do you know who it was? Does anybody know their Chinese history? Uh, Deng Xiaoping. Was, was a guy, yeah. Deng Xiaoping was a guy who cracked down. And so what students would do, 
And even when I was living in, a, I was working at a medical college, students would do this on, on, on June 4th, is they would take from their dormitories, they'd throw out little stools, throw them out onto the ground from the windows, and then take little bottles and throw them out from the windows, shatter on the ground. It's clever. A stool in Chinese is dengzi. And a little bottle is xiaoping. And so you throw out the stool, deng, a little bottle, xiaoping. And it's a way of demonstrating against deng xiaoping what he did. It's very cool. Um, so I'd always see like, all these little bottles broken. It's like, oh, very cool. And so all's to say, all's to say is that, I mean, this is pretty loaded stuff. So you have, um, you have these, uh, these crowds, you know, kind of demonstrating. They're waving palm branches, and they're singing this messianic song, and, and, and they're singing the songs. They're saying, Hosanna, which means, it doesn't mean Jesus be my forever friend, but it means Jesus kick out these Roman scum, set us free, Right? And so all this is going on. You have this loaded song. You have these loaded palm branches. And then this clinches it. How does Jesus enter into town? Is he walking? He's riding on a donkey. Well, that's no accident. The moment he's riding on a donkey, immediately people's minds would go back to a loaded prophecy. And it's a prophecy that you find way back in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. And, and they quote it, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Get this again. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right? So your king is coming triumphant and victorious, is he, humble and riding on a donkey. And to the crowd, this clinches it. They know who Jesus is. He is a king coming to rescue Israel. He's a king coming to kick out these no-good Romans. He's a king coming to establish his kingdom. And you can imagine why the crowds are excited. Right? Now imagine. Imagine you're in the crowd. And you're taking this in. Imagine you're, you're, you're standing there. And how could you not get caught up with things? You'd be there, you'd be saying things like, I know, I heard that this Jesus raised someone from the dead. I know his name, my cousin. My cousin knows him. His name's Lazarus. He's alive. He was dead and he's alive. And now, and, and now he's coming. He's entering the city of David. You get it, the city of David. And it's Passover. I know, Passover. Passover, the time where we remember how God decisively delivered his people. Jesus is, it's, it, it, it all fits, right? And listen to the crowd. Listen to what they're singing. Psalm 118. Look at Jesus. He's riding on a donkey. It all fits. Palm branches. It's going to happen. This has got to be it. Jesus has to be that Messiah. God has heard our cry. Something. Finally, something is happening. 
These Romans are going down. Jesus is our king. Right? The only problem is that Jesus was never going to be that kind of king. He was never going to be that kind of king. In fact, if we look a little closer, we we could have known better. I mean, if you look closely at the psalm and the prophecy, a couple things don't fit. In fact, in Psalm 118, there's a part that takes place just before you get to the hosannas. And this is important. We read, The stone that the builders rejected has become its chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, in our eyes. And so we read that. It says, reject it. Who is this stone that the builders rejected? Well, it's this Jesus. He is the one who will be rejected. He is the one that though the crowds are singing Hosanna, in a very short time they're going to be saying crucify him. And again, yes, Jesus is riding on a donkey. Yes, he's coming in like a king. But if you look at the prophecy, what does the prophecy say? It says that the purpose behind this kingship was not to reestablish a nation at the expense of its oppressors. But the, 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 the purpose of the kingship was that this king was to bring peace to the what? Do you know? To the nations. Not nation. But he brings peace to the nations. In fact, later on when Jesus is arrested... Pilate asks him, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but my kingdom is from another place. And so here's the thing. Jesus' kingdom was never about human society organizing to fulfill some political or military agenda. It's not about leading a rebellion with a sword. And everyone got it wrong. Everyone got Jesus wrong. Even, the, you see, in, in the passage, even the disciples, it says in verse 16, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Everyone got him wrong. Everyone got Jesus wrong. Now, here's the thing. Before I start saying, well, you should have got Jesus right. How often do I get Jesus wrong? How often do I want Jesus to be the king that I want him to be on my terms? I mean, if I preach this morning that you and I need to make Jesus king, well, I better be clear on what I mean by this. If I look at Jesus and I said, I think Jesus should be king in order to fulfill some kind of agenda that I have, then I get Jesus wrong. And yet, how often do we want Jesus on our terms, to do what we want him to do for our purposes. Even good purposes. Like, I'm not saying bad purposes, even for good purposes. And the moment Jesus' kingship becomes something about me and what I want, 
I wonder if I'm getting him wrong. Jesus is never a means to my own end. He is not king to make my life better. Jesus is not king to make me prosperous. Jesus is not king to make me happy, less lonely, fulfilled, a man of God, or whatever else I'm wanting. Jesus is never a means to an end. You've got to get that. I've shared this before, but I remember a, a buddy of mine, or a guy I knew anyhow, um, <laughs> he wasn't really a buddy. <laughs> to be honest, he was a guy I knew. Um, and he just says, you know, I just want, you know, the most important thing in life. And he's trying to impress me, right? He's, the most important thing, Pastor David, is, is, uh, is to be a man of God. And I said, well, that's dumb. <laughs> he goes, well, no, it should be a man. I said, no, no, no. I said, you can be so bent on being a man of God, you can miss God. The goal is not to be a man of God. The goal is to know Jesus. And to be known by him. See, Jesus, the pro, and this is where the heart gets tricky, right? You can be so bent on becoming godly, you can miss God. I've seen that in the church quite often. What does Jesus say? I am the beginning and the end. I'm, not, I'm never a means to an end. Oh, but we run into trouble. <laughs> we run into a lot of trouble when Jesus becomes a means to an end. Um, there's a missionary, a guy named Leslie Newbegin. He writes, the sentence, Jesus is Lord, only makes sense if the subject, Jesus, takes control of the predicate, Lord. If sovereignty is defined by the cross, if lordship is understood through the washing of one another's feet. If it means anything less than this, we've got Jesus wrong. So the question I have for you this morning is, what kind of king do you want Jesus to be? Now the sad part of church history is that we often get Jesus' kingship wrong. And there's a danger whenever we tie Jesus, his identity and his mission to a political agenda. Or any nation's interest. I'm always, I don't know about you, but I'm always, make sure we don't have one here. I'm always uncomfortable whenever a church has a flag in the sanctuary. Now, if it has many flags, I think that's good, right? Jesus comes to bring peace to the nations. That's, that's cool. But man, I, I mean, I interned in a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and I loved Omaha, Nebraska. Don't get me wrong. It's a long way from Vancouver, I'll tell you that. Um, and it was a great church. It really was a good church. But I'd never seen an American 4th of July church service. Anybody ever seen American 4th of July church service? Okay, yeah. Well, big church. At one point in the service, yeah, it's at it, one point in the service, they they, they, you know, played the song of the Marines, and all the Marines stood up, and they all played the song of the Navy, and they stood up, and the Air Force, and they all stood up, and I'm like, okay, this is weird. Um, there was a guy dressed as Uncle Sam. I thought that was a bit strange. And then, at one point, from the ceiling to the floor, slowly but surely, came down, as wide as this, the American flag, while the congressman was leading a prayer. 
I'm like, I'm just feeling a little funny about this. Now, it's not, it was a good church, except for that one service. <laughs> but it's, whenever Jesus is tied to a nation or a nation's interests, like the crowds in this passage, we get Jesus wrong. And here's the thing, I think history warns us of this. In, um, you see this in World War I and World War II. Two things happen. In World War I, there was a deep connection between the nations um, going to war and thinking that they had Jesus on their side. And um, if you look, every country that went to war spun it, saying that that God is on our side in this war. And they all went off joyfully to war in, in World War I. There's a lot of excitement. They thought the war was going to be done very shortly, but it didn't. It, it lasted four years, and millions of people died. So you see that happening. And then in World War II, what you have happening is you have some of the nations, especially in Nazi Germany, seducing the churches to get on board. And the Lutheran church, the German Lutheran church, for the most part, did get on board with... with um, with, with, with Hitler's agenda. Now, here's the thing. Because the church and politics got mixed together, and Jesus was used as a means to a political end, what you see happening in Europe today, the secularism of Europe, I think is a direct result of that. Because people said, you know what? You said Jesus was on our side. Everybody said that, and everybody died. I'm done. And I think if you want to understand what's going on in Europe and their complete rejection of Christianity has a lot to do with whenever we tie Jesus to a political agenda. Jesus brings peace to the nations. And the Pharisees saw this unwittingly. They, 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 they kind of cry out, look how the whole world has gone after him. And it's true. And one of the good stories of the 20th century is the explosion of the church in the global south. That the church has grown unbelievably in South America, East Asia, and Africa. In fact, sociologist uh, Philip Jenkins says that the greatest phenomenon of the 20th century is not communism, is not Islam, or it's, it's the rise of Christianity in Africa, where you go from 1910 of having about 10 million Christians to the end of the 20th century, having about 320 million Christians. It's, a, it's incredible. And I think for us, it's important for us to remember this. I'd say here in the West, and tell me if I'm wrong. Really, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, sometimes you throw these things out. But tell me. I would say that two of the characteristics of life in, West, in the West is that we are consumed with fear and anxiety these days. I think there's deep fear, deep anxiety in our culture. Everywhere we look, every news feed, we're faced with stories that evoke a sense of fear. And here's the thing. When you're afraid, what is your immediate reaction? try to get on top of things, to regain control. And I think the temptation is very strong for us in the West to try to gain control 
as Christians through means that Jesus never intended us to place our trust in. Now, I'm not against politics per se. I just taught a 10-week, <laughs> we were teaching a 10-week class on church and state up at uh, the Mariner campus. We just finished the, the class last week. So, I mean, we talk about politics and faith, and, and, and it's, the, the challenge is, is whenever we, we think that our faith in Jesus means we can have political power over a country, I think we're in trouble. And I think we face the same temptation as the crowds face to make Jesus into the king we think we need. The means to, through which we can control things, find protection, and then no longer be afraid. But here's the point. Jesus is a different kind of king. And we need to hear Jesus on his terms. And so what he says to us this morning is this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Jesus says, in this world, you and I will have what? Trouble. Again, it's a promise I've never seen on the wall in a Christian's home. All right? In this world, we're going to have trouble. But it's a promise that Jesus gives us. In this world, we will have trouble. If you're faithfully going to follow Jesus on his terms you will have trouble. But then what does Jesus say? But take heart. I have overcome the world. We need to look at Jesus as he takes a basin and towel and washes, washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the one who would betray him. And I've, I'm convinced that one of the reasons, I would say, if you, if you drill down, the reason why we are so afraid and anxious, do you want to know why it is? Do you want to know what's at the root of our fear and anxiety? I'll tell you. It's, it's, it's just two things. We really don't trust God. And there's a second part to that. We don't trust him because we don't think he's as good as his son says he is. I guarantee you, every time you experience fear and anxiety, ask yourself those two questions. Do I really trust the Father? Do I believe he's as good and loving as the Son says he is? I guarantee you that that's, if you drill down deep enough, that's what you're going to find, those two questions. The reality is that you and I have very little control over our lives. We have very little control over anything. All that we hope for, all that we trust in, can be taken away in a blink of an eye through sickness, through death, through changes. And our trust needs to be in the one who is truly Lord, who is truly King, and is King on his terms. And so the question I leave with you this morning, will you receive him and will you live under him on his terms? Yeah? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. You are our king. We say, King Jesus. And yet sometimes we mean so many other things than what you have revealed. We confess that we want you on our terms. We confess that sometimes we look at you as a means to our end. 
and yet you are never a means to an end. You are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. You are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the resurrection and the life. You have come to give us an abundant life. And life is found in you. And when you call us, you call us to die to ourselves and live to you. And so, Lord, we, we take our fears, we take our anxieties, we take this propensity to try to grab the steering wheel, to, to seize control, and we open our hands to you this morning. And we say, Lord, we trust you, and we believe that you are good, even though we don't always understand what's going on. We trust you, and we believe that you are good, and we give our lives to you. Will you lead us? And so we come before you. Thank you for life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness and for the hope of resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.